You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to what is actually episode 234 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the show. Previously on the podcast, we talked about how at the Battle of Fredericksburg, the federal offensive on the southern part of the battlefield would begin on Saturday, December 13, 1862, with vague, confusing orders from Ambrose Burnside to William Franklin. Franklin, commander of the left Grand Division, had been awake all night, waiting for the orders to initiate the Army's main attack against Stonewall Jackson's sector of the Confederate lines. But Franklin's already sour mood curdled even more when Burnside's imprecise, somewhat mystifying orders finally arrived that morning. Based on their conversation the night before, Franklin had assumed Burnside wanted the left Grand Division to deliver the Army's major major assault on December 13th, but now the instructions Franklin received didn't clearly communicate that that was still the plan. In his book on the battle, George Rabel has concluded that because of the muddled orders, quote, the force of the attack depended on Franklin's understanding and judgment, and that general had never shown much imagination or aggressiveness, end quote. We think Rabel's appraisal is fair, but we also think that when you're weighing up Franklin's decision to interpret Burnside's orders in the narrowest sense, then you also need to place the Army of the Potomac's troubled past on the scale. Yeah, you see, it's one thing to fault Franklin for not showing much imagination or aggressiveness, but it has to be pointed out that the general who built the Army of the Potomac, George McClellan, didn't exhibit either of those qualities to any significant degree, except in consistently, wildly overestimating how many Confederates he imagined confronted him, right? Well, but the point is this, that especially as far as lack of aggression, it's not surprising that those commanders who were McClellan's strongest devotees, such as Franklin, would be cut from the same mold. Plus, Franklin had to have had been upset as he'd watched as Little Mac was removed from command and dismayed as he'd seen 5th Corps commander and McClellanite Fitzjohn Porter, cast as the scapegoat for the Union debacle at Second Bull Run. So those factors probably also need to be added to the scale when weighing what was behind Franklin's decision 
to interpret Burnside's orders in the most cautious possible sense. At any rate, William Franklin certainly bears the responsibility for not asking the staff officer who brought the orders about Burnside's intentions, and for not sending a message to Army headquarters asking for clarification. In the end, for whatever reason, Franklin stubbornly chose to interpret Burnside's orders in the narrowest sense, and so assigned just one division to the effort. He had authority over roughly 60,000 troops on his part of the battlefield, but ultimately would end up using less than one-fourth of them directly against Stonewall Jackson's portion of the Confederate defensive line. As we said last week, Franklin assigned the task to John Reynolds' 1st Corps, and Reynolds, in turn, selected George Meade's division of Pennsylvania Reserves to make the attack. Meade questioned whether he was really to make the assault with just his one division, since he worried it would simply be a repeat of the Army's piecemeal attacks at Antietam, but he was told, that is General Burnside's order. Franklin had directed Reynolds to keep the division making the attack well supported, so as Meade's 4,500 Pennsylvanians deployed a quarter mile south of a property known today as Slaughter Pen Farm, the other two First Corps divisions positioned themselves to support him. On Meade's left, Abner Doubleday deployed his division, although Doubleday would soon get sidetracked by the apparent Confederate threat to the Army's left flank, and so he would be useless to Meade in the coming effort. To Meade's right, John Gibbon deployed his division. Gibbon had the 4,000 men in his three brigades arrayed in three lines. Brigadier General Nelson Taylor's brigade composed the first, Colonel Peter Littles the second, and Colonel Adrian Roots the third. Gibbon, a North Carolinian who chose to stay with the Union, didn't know it, but on this day, when he would go forward to support Meade, he would end up fighting a Confederate brigade that included three of his brothers. As we said in last week's show, after Meade's and Gibbon's troops had deployed for battle, the Union attack was delayed by a single Confederate cannon directed by Major John Pelham, the commander of Jeb Stuart's horse artillery. Here on the morning of December 13th, the bold young officer would win everlasting fame as the gallant Pelham, only to fall mortally wounded in a cavalry charge three months later. And so Fredericksburg proved to be Pelham's finest day, as he stalled the entire Federal advance on the south end of the battlefield for nearly an hour. Increasing enemy pressure and a diminishing supply of ammunition eventually forced Pelham to withdraw from his advanced position, and he reluctantly gave the order to limber up and pull back. After that, Federal artillery pounded Prospect Hill, the anchor of Stonewall's line, and the woods that concealed the Confederate infantry for two more hours. And so it wasn't until about 1 p.m. that afternoon that Meade's division finally stepped out and charged forward. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Early on the morning of the 13th, General Jackson rode along the front by our guns. A.P. Hill and Colonel Walker, his chief of artillery, did the same. We were cautioned to keep ourselves concealed as much as possible and ordered on no account to reply to artillery fire or engage in artillery duels, that our fire must be reserved to use upon infantry and then not until the enemy had reached a given point. Our expectations were excited all the more from the fact that a heavy fog hung over the plain, concealing it from our view. But though we could not see through the fog, there was no lack of ominous sounds to indicate what was going on. When the mist lifted about ten o'clock, a gorgeous panorama was spread out before us. As far as the eye could see, back towards the river, and stretching up towards Fredericksburg, the vast plain was filled with moving masses of men, rapidly deploying and forming alignments into what appeared to be three lines of battle, and here and there large gaps in the lines being filled with artillery, while moving about and adding more life and color to the scene were squadrons of cavalry. Back of it all, the Stafford Heights stood out, crowned with heavy parrots and siege pieces, which had not waited for the mist to lift before they began throwing their heavy missiles and feeling our position. No grander military spectacle was ever presented to human view. The heavy guns from the Stafford Heights had been engaged shelling the woods, which served as a screen, making it very uncomfortable. Some of the shells were of enormous size, and tearing through the treetops above us brought down huge limbs, which was trying to the men, and which frightened the horses greatly until they were taken out of reach. When the field batteries belonging to the divisions of Meade and Gibbon opened their fire, the situation became still more trying. But our orders were strict to save our ammunition, not to fire until the given signal, and then at the columns of infantry. There was therefore nothing to do but to lay still and take it. The gun redoubts offered little protection. Some of the men lay flat on the ground, and some hugged the trunks of large trees, which was all right but for the limbs which came down from above. Captain David G. McIntosh, P.D. South Carolina Artillery, A.P. Hills Division. We were now underway in this ever-to-be-remembered charge, one of the most terrible pieces of work. T'was even worse than standing in front of the famous cornfield at Antietam, as we lost three times the number here. 
We were now well into the enemy's warm fire on this December day. The men inclined their heads somewhat, as though moving against a driving rain. The familiar chalk, chalk of balls striking the line was heard constantly to right and left, while men tumbled out of line in quick succession. We were so close together that there was little place for balls to pass between the men. We were surely shoulder to shoulder in this advance. With this great pressure on both sides, and a determined little fellow in my rear, Fulmer of Anvil, PA, I went into battle this day. I noticed Benny Smith of Middletown, PA, lying, supporting himself on left elbow, shot through the right shoulder. The sharp thud of a spent ball on my front, below the belt, caused me to quickly look and feel for a hole in my overcoat, but no hole this time, though t'was no false alarm as I felt it thump against me with some force. Soon thereafter, Fulmer said, Bates, a ball went through your haversack. Holding up my left hand, I said in reply, I know it. Look there. I had been wounded in the coat sleeves at the wrist, ball passing through overcoat and dress coat sleeves, carrying away a bit of hide and allowing about one drop of blood to come forth in defense of flag. The spot burned as though a coal of fire had touched it. Arriving at the railroad, we halted and lay against the sides of a cut about three feet in depth. Many of us lay with backs against the bank toward the enemy, while some occupied the ditches by the track on the opposite bank. Here we lay for a few minutes listening to the roar of Yankee and Confederate cannon as they slam into each other. The line began to move forward. I heard no order. The line went forward without regular order, making a grand dash for the woods along which the enemy was posted. Gaining the wood, at this point somewhat open, we slackened our pace. A light worm or snake fence, now nearly demolished, ran along the edge of the wood. The first of the enemy's infantry that I saw was one who had been firing from a rest on the crotch or fork of a dogwood tree just high enough to allow him to take aim while kneeling. He must have had a glorious time and smiled while working his gun as we advanced but the poor young soldier had been struck by a ball or small fragment of a shell just above the right eye. He lay on his back with his legs still bent under. It seemed as though a bucket of blood had run out of his head. Corporal Bates Alexander, 7th Pennsylvania Reserves, Magleton's Brigade. During Pelham's one-gun bombardment of the Federal flank, the Union soldiers in the divisions of Meade and Gibbon remained prone on the ground, which turned from frozen to muddy as the morning passed away and the day began to warm. Lying on the open floodplain and growing increasingly uncomfortable in the cold mud, Meade's division of Pennsylvania Reserves was comprised of three brigades led by Colonel William Sinclair, Colonel Albert Lewis Magleton, and Brigadier General Conrad Fager Jackson. Sinclair had served as an enlisted man in the artillery during the Mexican-American War. Here in the Civil War, he had been Colonel of the 6th Pennsylvania Reserves and had only been in brigade command for a short time. Magleton had graduated from West Point in 1846, ranking just behind Stonewall Jackson in class standings. 
A veteran of the war with Mexico, Magleton had commanded the 4th Pennsylvania Reserves since the end of 1861 and had only led his brigade for a month. Fager Jackson had been a devout Quaker and pacifist for much of his early life. No doubt, though, his exposure to warfare while serving as a courier during the conflict with Mexico and his involvement in a militia company back in the Keystone State after that war had led him to raise a regiment, the 9th Pennsylvania Reserves, in 1861. Jackson was promoted to Brigadier General in the summer of 1862 and led his brigade at Second Bull Run, South Mountain, and Antietam. The soldiers who made up the units of Meade's division were mostly battle-hardened veterans, but except for Fager Jackson, his brigade commanders had precious little experience managing multiple regiments in battle. The assault on the Confederate line below Fredericksburg would serve as their on-the-job training. Sinclair's brigade formed Meade's first line. Magleton's brigade deployed in line behind Sinclair, while Jackson's troops remained in column on the left. Meade's objective, once he had seized Prospect Hill, would be to push on and cut the military road behind the Confederate lines. Remember, the road was really just a logging path behind their front that the rebels had improved upon to facilitate movement between Longstreet's and Stonewall Jackson's sections of their line. First Corps Commander John Reynolds had prepared for an artillery bombardment to soften up the Confederates across the way before Meade advanced. The barrage started about 11 a.m. Sixty-six guns blasted away for an hour. One Federal wrote of how, quote, The air was resonant with the savage music of shells and solid shot, end quote. But the Confederate cannon remained silent. You see, Stonewall didn't want his artillery to prematurely disclose their exact positions by engaging in a duel with the Union guns. Plus, he wanted the rebel cannon to reserve their ammunition to break up the inevitable advance of the Yankee infantry. At noon, Meade sent his men forward. The Confederate gunners, as per Stonewall's orders, let the Yankee infantry get within 800 yards before finally opening a withering barrage of their own. Rebel artillery positioned on Prospect Hill and around Bernard's slave cabins and near Hamilton's Crossing poured a destructive fire onto Meade's and Gibbon's troops, who again dove for cover in the muddy fields. The Federal bombardment had obviously done little to soften up the Confederates after all, but now that the Rebel guns had opened fire, they revealed their positions, and the Federals' accuracy improved significantly. The Union infantry could do little but hit the dirt once again and wait for the artillery to settle the matter between them. One of the waiting Pennsylvanians later recalled, quote, The cannonballs were flying over and among us all the time, killing men and hosses and tearing up the ground all around us and throwing mud and dirt over us and blowing up one of our, of our ammunition wagons. During the shelling, Meade did his best to reassure the men and encourage them. When he rode up to William Buck McCandless of the Second Reserves, Meade smiled and asked, A star this morning, William? Referring to a possible promotion for the colonel. McCandless responded, More likely a wooden overcoat. A moment later, a Confederate shell arced in and exploded under the colonel's horse, killing it. 
After the initial shock, both officers tried to laugh off the incident as McCandless pulled himself from the mud. Shortly before one o'clock, federal gunners happened to strike two Confederate limber chests full of artillery ammunition, which went up in an impressive pyrotechnic show that drew the men of Meade's division to their feet with a cheer. The spectacular explosions on Prospect Hill ended up serving as the unofficial signal for the start of the Union attack, because when he saw the troops up on their feet and realizing there was no sense in waiting any longer, George Meade gave the order for his men to charge. In their advance across the open killing fields south of the Slaughterpen Farm, Meade's men took heavy casualties from the rebel artillery posted on Prospect Hill, as well as from the Confederate infantry of Lane's and Archer's brigades. One of the Pennsylvanians said, quote, It was terrible to see the men falling all about, the balls humming and shizzing about us like bees, and such roar of cannon and muskets that one could hardly hear the orders of our officers. Punished by the rebel fire, Sinclair's brigade raced toward the nearest cover in front of them, a finger of woods that jutted out from the Confederate lines into the open ground. Not only did the trees promise concealment for the charging Federals, but incredibly, no enemy fire came from those woods. Sinclair's Yankees couldn't have known it, of course, but they were headed straight for that hole in A.P. Hill's line where the tangled marshy ground had meant a 600-yard gap was left between Lane's and Archer's brigades. As Sinclair's Federals headed toward that gap in the Rebel line, Magleton's brigade followed closely on their heels. Meade's other brigade, led by Fager Jackson, veered to the left toward a stone wall near the railroad line. Jackson's men, out in the open, suffered, quote, under a murderous fire that mowed them down like grass, according to the unit, unit's chaplain. As enemy fire poured down upon them from Prospect Hill, Beggar Jackson's Federals dove for cover along the tracks or huddled in the ditches that bordered the open fields, even though they were filled with several feet of icy water. With his brigade's advance stalled, Jackson rode along his lines to steady his men and prepare for a charge, but it was not to be. A rebel bullet crashed into Jackson's skull, killing him. Meanwhile, Sinclair's men reached the woods and started to slog their way through the swamp that A.P. Hill had thought to be impassable by any organized body of troops. And Hill was kind of right, because as the Federals forced their way through the boggy, tangled thicket, Unit cohesion among Sinclair's brigade broke down almost completely. They were anything but organized. Magleton's brigade, following behind, also became jumbled up as it clambered through the swamp. Sinclair went down with an injured ankle. Magleton was trapped beneath his horse when it was killed. Meade himself never made it past the railroad, and so the Federals here who had pushed into the gap in the rebel line may have been more an armed mob than an army as they scrambled up toward the high ground behind the marsh, but the sheer momentum of their advance and the absence of opposition carried them forward toward the unsuspecting South Carolinians of Maxie Gregg's brigade. Lying in the woods behind our stacked arms, we underwent a heavy shelling, a good many men being wounded, some in our company. 
A man belonging to Company E, lying close to me, had his arm shattered. Captain Haskell, out in front of us, sitting with his back to the enemy, leaning against a sapling the size of a man's arm, quietly munched a cracker. Suddenly there began to come, mixed with the shells, rifle balls. Faster and faster they came, and there was quite a stir on our right, where we could see men jumping up and seizing their guns, some beginning to fire. We sprang to the stacks, but our officers shouted, Let the guns alone! Lie down! Those are our men to the front! Wish came the bullets faster than ever. The commotion on our right increased, and far up to the right we could see our men jumping up and seizing their guns. Many were firing and loading as fast as they could. Others stood irresolute, many officers in front trying to keep the men from firing. We could stand it no longer. We all rose, and the officers then ordered us to take arms. We no sooner had them in hand than we saw men in front. Some cried, They are Yankees, and began firing. Others shouted, No, they are our own men. Don't shoot. Then came the cry, Forward. My old schoolmate, Sergeant Pete Ransom, sprang forward on the left, leading the charge. Down the slope we went, firing and driving whoever they were, but we did not drive far, being halted and ordered back. All was hubbub, some saying, They were Yankees, I tell you. I saw their blue clothes. Others said, Couldn't be Yankees. There's a North Carolina brigade out front. Been there all the time. Sergeant Mackey says, Well, I hope they're not our men, for I've killed one. He was very pale and plainly in great trouble lest he had killed one of our own men, for of the killing he was positive. Then, to know, a few men were sent down to the front to look at the dead. They soon returned with the good news that it was the enemy. Mackey's man they found dead, just where he had said. On the right, the trouble had been worse. The enemy, through a gap between two brigades in our front, had advanced in a line oblique to ours, striking our right first, which received the brunt of the meeting. When they first advanced, General Gregg, being quite certain it was the first line of battle falling back, rode in front of his men, commanding them to cease firing. And thereby he lost his life, for the enemy came quickly upon him, and he was shot from his horse, receiving a wound from which he died. How it was that the line, which was in our front, got out of position, exposing us to surprise, I don't think was ever clearly explained. During the battle, just after our charge, while we were down in the woods, in a state of considerable excitement, a rabbit jumped up and ran here and there among the men, seemingly frightened out of its wits. And no wonder, for in all directions it heard the rattle of small arms, and the roar of artillery and bursting of shells. In its imagination, no doubt, it was the last grand hunt of the world, a very judgment day. Finally the poor creature jumped up on a stump just in front of the line and squatted there, the most conspicuous position it could possibly have found. Corporal Barry Benson, 1st South Carolina, Gregg's Brigade We shared that rather lengthy quote from that rebel soldier because it really shows the confusion that reigned in Maxie Gregg's brigade as the Federals inadvertently exploited that gap in the Confederate front line 
and scrambled through the tangle of the swamp and then broke through onto the hilly, dry ground beyond. As you could tell from what we just read, Greg and his South Carolinians were completely surprised when the Pennsylvanians burst upon them. As that rebel soldier, Corporal Benson, indicated, Greg and his men had supposed themselves to be in the second rank of the Confederate line, and so assumed the soldiers to their front were their own men falling back. Benson, by the way, survived this chaotic action unharmed, but was wounded in 1863, and then was captured at Spotsylvania in 1864. Held at the Union prison camp at Elmira, New York, he escaped by tunneling out in October 1864 and somehow made his way back south where he rejoined his regiment, serving until Appomattox. At any rate, Maxie Gregg, who was partially deaf, may not have fully understood the orders which placed his brigade where it was, because he apparently never realized that he had been positioned directly behind the hole in the Confederate front line, to cover that gap, and so when Meade's men came boiling out of the swampy ground, Greg tried to stop his troops from shooting. It was their own men, he told them, but of course it wasn't fellow Confederates, it was the enemy, and one of the advancing Yankee soldiers trained his musket on Greg, who was a conspicuous target on his horse. The bullet ripped into Greg's side, severing his spine. He died two days later. The disorganized but surging mass of Sinclair's and Magleton's men shattered Gregg's South Carolina Brigade and turned north and south, beginning to attack the right flank of Lane's Brigade and starting to roll up the left of Archer's Brigade, virtually collapsing it. Meade realized he had made a breakthrough, but he needed reinforcements to sustain his efforts. On Meade's right, the supporting attack by John Gibbon's division had also bogged down. While Meade's men had sprinted for the cover of the woods to their front and hit the hole in the Confederate line, Gibbon's troops had no cover to protect their advance to the railroad embankment and beyond, where Lane's well-protected rebels waited among the trees. Gibbon attacked with Taylor's brigade and then Little's, but both were stopped by fierce Confederate artillery and musketry and driven back. Gibbon then ordered Ruth's brigade across the tracks and over the deadly open ground. But Root's troops were soon slowed to a crawl by the devastating rebel fire. Lieutenant Abner Small, an aide to Colonel Root, saw a soldier trying to advance into the storm of enemy fire. However, the man couldn't make his legs support him. As he fell to his knees and strove in vain to rise, the expression on his face betrayed the intensity of his inner struggle. Small tried to shame him into moving by shouting, Coward! The man screamed back, You lie! but still couldn't force himself to his feet and go forward. After the attack, he came to Small in tears and said, I couldn't go on, but I'm not a coward. Small, touched by the soldier's sincerity, asked his forgiveness. Meanwhile, on Meade's front, the tide had shifted. Increasingly disorganized and still unsupported, The Pennsylvanians were running out of steam just as they found themselves assailed on three sides by counterattacking Confederates. Rebel troops from Early's and Tolliver's divisions came rushing through the woods to reach the spot of the Federal breakthrough. 
Seeing this, the hard-pressed remaining regiments of Lane's and Archer's brigades rallied and managed to form new lines facing the now faltering Yankees. At the same time, on Gibbon's front, Root and fellow brigade commander Taylor rode up and down the lines, urging the men forward into the furious Confederate fire. Somehow the officers managed to keep the troops moving. When the Federals were close enough that they caught sight of rebel soldiers up ahead amongst the trees, a shout rose among the men, and they leaped over ditches and surged over the railroad embankment to charge into the woods and close with the enemy. They hit Lane's Confederates, and in a violent struggle that was sometimes hand-to-hand, the Yankees initially prevailed and even managed to take a couple of hundred prisoners. But then the Federal attack here, like Meade's assault, began to break down and lose steam, and Root rode back to Gibbon to ask for help and further orders. Gibbon, though, simply told him to press on. Meanwhile, Early's Confederate troops were continuing their furious counterattack against Meade's breakthrough. Realizing the opportunity that was quickly slipping away, Meade had sent repeated messages asking for reinforcements. Then the outraged general had finally ridden back himself looking for support. At least 20,000 Federal soldiers stood idle nearby, but none were ordered to support the increasingly desperate attackers as the rebel brigades swarmed down upon them. Perhaps Franklin was not sufficiently in touch with the ebb and flow of the fighting to know that Meade and Gibbon needed support. Perhaps he was simply unwilling to commit more men to what he had already decided was to be simply a limited effort by just one division. Whatever the case, Meade's men, then Gibbons, began to yield ground and soon were driven back over the railroad tracks and out onto the open ground of the floodplain. Among the advancing Confederates was one of Jubal Early's brigades, led by Colonel Robert Hoke. Hoke's men raced after the retreating Federals and gained the railroad cut. Captain James Mishet later recalled that it was not empty of Yankees, saying, I ran up in front of my men and jumped into the cut, landing on a big captain's head, ramming it down in the mud. The men piled in after us. A detail of three boys was made to show the prisoners where to go, and they were ordered to get out quick to give us room. As the Federals gave up their hard-earned gains, and as the counter-attacking Confederates stabilized their lines, George Meade, still in a rage, encountered John Reynolds and stormed, My God, General Reynolds, did they think my division could whip Lee's entire army? The butcher's bill for both sides at Prospect Hill showed how fierce the few hours of fighting had been on this part of the battlefield, with Stonewall Jackson losing 3,398 men, while Franklin's left Grand Division and attached units suffered 5,333 casualties. By mid-afternoon, the repulses of Meade and Gibbon had put Franklin in a defensive-minded mood. When Burnside sent a staff officer later that afternoon to ascertain Franklin's situation and give him orders to renew his assaults, Franklin responded by saying that he thought he would need all of his strength just to maintain his present position. Many of Franklin's officers were by then utterly discouraged. Many had believed the assault to be hopeless from the outset, but then they had actually punctured the Confederate line and been on the verge of a breakthrough only to watch as the opportunity then slipped away, 
along with thousands of lives. Many were furious with Franklin for not supporting Meade's attack when it pierced the rebel line. Franklin, for his part, had lost all faith in Burnside and ignored the army commander's subsequent order telling him to send his men back into the attack. In so doing, he earned Burnside's wrath but avoided the wholesale slaughter that was at that moment being visited upon the hapless men of Bull Sumner's command up at the foot of Marie's Heights outside Fredericksburg. The battle has raged fiercely today. The rebels occupy an advantageous position. Our troops are on an open plain, while they occupy a ridge in our front and are sheltered by dense woods. But about 1.30 p.m., one part of the line made a forward movement, our division as usual taking the advance. This was a fearful movement. We left the field over which we advanced, thickly strewn with our dead and wounded. We drove the rebels from their position in the railroad cut at the edge of the woods. On entering the woods, our line was thrown into confusion by a misunderstanding of orders. But our men pushed on boldly and reached the summit of the hill. During the confusion, I received a shot through both legs, completely disabling me. Our men were soon after attacked by the enemy in heavy force, and being being weakened by the great slaughter in our ranks while advancing, and wholly without support, they were driven back over me in disorder. All that we gained at so fearful a cost is lost. I am still lying where I fell. The rebels have advanced a line over me so that I am a prisoner. I am now exposed to the fire of our artillery, which is fearfully destructive. Death has been doing fearful work today. Sergeant Jacob Heffelfinger 7th Pennsylvania Reserves, Magleton's Brigade. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Fredericksburg Campaign, Decision on the Rappahannock, edited by Gary W. Gallagher. This book is a collection of seven essays by leading Civil War historians about various aspects of the Fredericksburg campaign. And this is one of a series of these books with essays about different battles that Gallagher has edited, and each one is really top-notch. So this one about Fredericksburg isn't the first and won't be the last that we recommend on the podcast. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can sign up to become a member of the Strawfoot Brigade and support the podcast financially each month, as well as get access to over 65 members' episodes. And we want to thank Jesse, Sam, and Steve for joining the ranks of the Strawfoot Brigade recently. And a big thank you to Melvin for his donation and to Brooks for his gift. Thanks, guys. Yep, thanks, guys. And thanks to each of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time as we shift our focus to the northern portion of the battlefield at Fredericksburg 
and talk about the fearful slaughter of the federal attackers in front of Marie's Heights. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Also at the website, you can sign up to become a member of the Strawfoot Brigade and support the podcast financially each month so that we can replace books that are chewed up by a certain (laughs) mischievous golden retriever who shall remain nameless. Two books, actually. Two books, yes. Two books, yes. Two books that we need to replace. (laughs) 